This is the Mail and Guardian. Hello listeners. This is the second installment of The Fiscal Cliff, a Mail and Guardian podcast series about the state of South Africa's public purse and how the government's efforts to rein in spending have resulted in a prolonged period of austerity, eroding public services. My name is Sarah Smith, and today I am joined by Sibonge Seni Delichlauso, the spokesperson for the Democratic Nursing Organization of South Africa, who I will be speaking to about the public sector wage bill, which is viewed by policymakers as one of the bis- biggest risks to the fiscus. We will also discuss how the Treasury's fiscal consolidation has affected public sector workers and their ability to deliver quality services. Thank you very much, Sarah, and greetings to the listeners. Thank you. In October 2020, the Finance Minister Tito Mboweni described bringing the country's budget to heel as closing the jaws of the hippopotamus. One of the main interventions identified by Mboweni since he became minister two years prior was the public sector wage bill, which he claimed had been excessively high. Sibongi so, I'm I'm wondering what your view is on how the Treasury has approached the public sector workers and the question of the wage bill. Well, we are not happy, to be honest. We are not happy with how the Treasury is really approaching the issue of the public sector wage bill. I mean, if you look at the figures in terms of personnel numbers, some years ago, the number of you know government employees were more than they are currently. And you look at the population figures, they're increasing. Of course, there is an influx of um, foreign nationals who are residing here permanently, and the burden of diseases in the, in the case of health. There's a lot of work for public servants, and yet you have cut down on the numbers of public, um, to public servants, and that does not count in your eyes as a treasurer, and you're always concerned about that. If we were to be realistic and we were to be concerned about the quality of services that the government is providing to the public, then the numbers the numbers of personnel in our in our in our in our government uh, service centers are nowhere near than well they are quite low than they were you know in the years ago despite the increase in population therefore let's acknowledge that the quality of services that the government is giving to the communities is far less than it was previously and many nurses in the case of healthcare services many nurses there's a high vacancy rates many nurses are doing the work of you know two or three more nurses who are not employed and I wonder, in your view, why is this an issue? I mean, some people might say, okay, just give all the responsibility to the private sector, but why is it important in a country like South Africa to have robust and capacitated public sector? Well, I think lack of appreciation of the essence of the public service is what we think could be the problem. You've got decision makers in government positions who make decisions and yet they do not feel the pinch of such decisions if they are wrong. Now, in the case of the public sector, you have government ministers, you have senior managers in the government who are not feeling the pinch of the decision that they make. I'll give an example. You say, let's cut on the staff in healthcare facilities. You, you are making that decision, and it's never going to affect you because you are, you are dependent on the private sector. And this is the biggest problem that we're having. We feel that it's not going to be possible for our senior managers in government and our ministers to really understand the importance of the decisions that they make and the effect such decisions have on the quality of services. I'm afraid many decisions that our government is making have negative consequences on the quality of services that people are receiving you know, at, the, at the end of the day. And 
people are very despondent. Increasingly, public services are becoming unavailable as a result of the shortage of staff. If you have to go to a clinic, we must wake up at one o'clock in many, in many instances, in many communities. You must wake up at one o'clock a.m. to go to a clinic that opens at seven because there are many people who will be flocking there because there's not enough staff. You may not be seen, all of you, you know, in, in, in that given day. Hence, you wake up at one o'clock, risking all your, I mean, your life and, and going there to chew outside the clinic. There are no shelters. And that's just the, the, the poor state of services that we are continuing to you know, receive at the hands of decisions that, that really are made by people who are not, who are not affected by such decisions. As you say, there is this kind of view out there that the public sector wage bill is so big and that there's that that the public sector is overstaffed. Yet, if we look at research by the Public Economy Project, it shows that despite there being growth in earlier years of our democracy, between 2012 and 2019, headcounts head across the public service stagnated and pay gains were far more moderate. I'm wondering, I mean, I suppose you've kind of alluded to it. I mean, what is the effect of a worker, a nurse, who has to now work under these conditions where there is understaffing, where they're not necessarily being paid what they're due? Mostly they are depressed, as we speak. Many public servants are depressed. Many public servants are bent out. There's lack of support. They are demoralized, demotivated. And many nurses, I'm afraid, are packing their bags and are, are preparing to leave South Africa. Of course, COVID-19 has taught us some tough lessons and it has taught healthcare systems around the world some tough lessons. Countries who care about their systems have learned greatly from that to such that they are coming, flocking to South Africa to coach our very public servants. We talk of nurses, with various specializations and experience. We talk of doctors. Now, in a situation where you've got fewer workers who render service, a public service, those workers, if they're, if they're not well supported, as is the case in the country, are thinking of leaving the system. Those who are remaining in the country are those obviously whose responsibilities may not be allowing them to, to consider moves overseas. But those who could risk it are packing their bags and are ready to leave this country. Now, the effects of this are dire on the, on the communities. We have at some point been at this period where due to shortage of staff in healthcare facilities, um, many nurses have you know, applied for jobs in the UK, UAE, Saudi Arabia, you know, USA, Canada and the likes. And unfortunately, the absence of a staff retention plan by the government currently is going to motivate more nurses to leave the country because there's nothing that is keeping them here. At some point, there was a staff retention plan, although it was not 100% effective, uh, called um, occupation-specific dispensation. It was a plan to really say, the longer you stay in government, the more years you accumulate, you will be upgraded in terms of notches. And it's a way of keeping what to the staff, which was very important, and it had at some point, had so much positive effects that those who had already left the country were coming back and the applications to the UK posts had been you know, cut by about 80%. That was in 2007. So in the absence of this, at the time when there's this huge shortage of staff, a huge workload, and researchers have proven this, 
that in an environment where you've got staff that is not motivated, you're not likely to get adequate services out of those. And the, the, the negative attitude that many communities are not happy about the nurses, there is a reason for this. Really trying to address the reasons as to why you've got staff that has got bad attitude, who will have positive attitude all the time when there's a short, huge shortage of staff. You can't even take breaks in your work. And yet, they're ignorated adequately. And the, the conditions generally are just appalling and demotivating. You already mentioned the pandemic, and I think the government, in a way, did and had an 11th hour intervention to kind of loosen the public's strings a little bit in order to kind of capacitate the healthcare system. But I also think that that crisis really did expose how neglected the healthcare system had been for very many years and the workers in that system. I'm just wondering, in your view, what was it like for nurses to negotiate that period? I mean, I think overseas in the UK, remember, there were people clapping their pots and pans every night for the nurses. But was that same kind of respect kind of given to our nurses here in South Africa? Well, I'm afraid, and if you remember, we were making a lot of noise as Dinosa. That period has taught us some great lessons. Of course, in as much as our nurses really um, shielded the nation from the jaws of death, in spite of the more than 100,000 people that we lost to COVID-19, uh, given the dire strain in our healthcare system, we still feel it is somehow a miracle that we evaded the catastrophe that could have befallen us as a nation due to the shortage of staff in the main, shortage of equipment, and infrastructural you know, backlog in our healthcare system generally. But the resilience of the healthcare personnel have proven to us that we've got gold in our hands. Because, and that is why many countries are coaching and are hovering around South Africa coaching our healthcare workers. And if you don't wake up as a country, by the time you wake up, many of them will have left the country and it will be difficult to get these healthcare professionals back once they leave this country. So COVID-19 has taught us some great lessons. And I think this is a, an, an opportunity for us to really appreciate, we thought, we thought it could be an opportunity to really appreciate the input of healthcare workers in our healthcare system. But I'm afraid this does not seem to have had the effect that we thought it would on the, in the eyes of the government in terms of decision-making. And yes, there was some, some relief in terms of funds being released to, to at least you know, expand on the numbers, but that was a, a temporary measure. We are faced currently, in fact, even before COVID-19, if you remember, we're making a lot of noise about this dire shortage of staff in healthcare facilities. When some funds were released to of course, to deal with COVID-19, we were quite happy and we thought that at least one area of concern to us and to the healthcare system was being addressed and we we're hoping that it would be addressed forever. And so that way, by the time we move, yes, we have learned lessons. But unfortunately, where we are currently is that because these were temporary positions that were created and staff were hired temporarily, some of those contracts are coming to an end and therefore those nurses and healthcare professionals are going back to where they were on the unemployment lines. And unfortunately, at the time when there's a huge shortage of staff, the vacancy rates are there. Go to the Eastern Cape, you may find that there were about 20% shortage in nursing staff in the healthcare system in the, in the province. There were attempts, of course, to try to reduce it to about 13%. And 
uh, go to Limpopo. In Limpopo, you've got clinics that are operating only for eight hours. They should be operating for 24 hours simply because of the shortage of staff. They're not able to. And this is the case in many other provinces as well. Hence, I mentioned earlier that the public service is increasingly becoming unavailable to our communities. And the shortage of staff is at the core of that. And yet you still see that as a big concern in the eyes of the government. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point because, I mean, on the one hand, it is about human resources and having the people available. And then on the other hand, when you talk about infrastructure, that's also a big issue, right? And it also relates to the austerity program that the the country has been under because when there's not no when there's a lack of spending on infrastructure then we have nurses working in terrible conditions can you speak a little bit more of how that infrastructure shortfall has affected the way that nurses work well it has affected them greatly i'm afraid it's getting worse and um, you may have seen um, the correspondence from the national treasury to the provincial heads of the treasuries and provinces, announcing the, the austerity measures essentially from the 15th of September until the economy, economic outlook improves. And this is this this means, of course, that there must be stoppage with the hiring of staff unless that staff is critical, which we have got a serious concern with. Because in the case of healthcare services, we still don't we still don't we understand, Sarah, we understand the the situation in the country finds itself in economically. We're all here, we're affected by it as well. But what we are finding it difficult to understand is despite the backlog in terms of shortage of staff, you still have a government that takes a decision on cutting costs, a decision that also includes an essential service like the Department of Health. And the Department of Health, unfortunately, is labor intensive. It is staff intensive because Patients present themselves with various illnesses, and such illnesses must be attended to if we don't may lose those patients. Now, people don't go to healthcare facilities by choice, and it's an essential service for a reason. And yet you see the treasury that still sees the National Department of Health and the health services generally as something that you can still cut on. Are you not saying people must die simply because we don't have enough money? We must think carefully about that. And in fact, if we're concerned about the economy, studies around the world, economic studies even, prove that if you want economic recovery, you can't neglect health. I mean, the economy is driven by people. If workers are flocking to healthcare facilities, it means they're not productive. They are lost in the productivity chain. And if you don't improve the healthcare system in your country, you're not likely to improve your economic growth or recovery. Time soon. So the two are correlated, the two are interrelated, and we still find that our government sees the healthcare service in this country as an expense instead of seeing it as an investment. Healthcare services is an investment in the growth of your economy. That's definitely true. And it's I think it is something that we kind of neglect or that is neglected in the public discourse, specifically around the NHI, even though there isn't this same talk about how the NHI might help to grow the economy. It's all about how much it will sap at the fiscus. But there, there isn't this kind of talk of how important it is to invest in your public sector and invest in health, invest in people. I mean, at the people that suffer the most in this, 
in South Africa, it's not the the elite who is able to access private health care services. It is the poor. That's detrimental in a country like ours, right? Not true. Sarah, in fact, you are very concerned. And there is a danger that we're headed for as a country that we do not think many people are able to see. If you talk of a healthcare system, you know, as an example, we've got the greatest fears, Dinosa. The greatest fear that we have is that because now, as part of uh, cost cutting measures by the government, the staffing personnel numbers that is being focused on, of course, is going to affect the the quality of services that we are providing to our communities. But our greatest concern is the future, lies in the future. In the case of nursing, we've got almost half the population of nurses that we have in our country and on the system who are about to retire in the next five to 15 years. That's tough. And we've got about 280,000 nurses in the whole country. And if you look at that, this is the statistics that the figures that we've got in the country, you can just look at it's one nurse pay about 20, 220 people in the country. And if you look at countries like Germany, those there's one nurse for every like 59 people. And in the next five to 15 years, in the next five to 15 years, the catastrophe that we're headed for is that as these are retiring, we don't have enough nurses that we are training to become nurses. And because of the poor conditions, we feel that these nurses may not wait for the age, retirement age, because there are incentives for them to live even now without being penalized if they are at age 55 and the likes. So we are concerned about that. And most of our concern, and this is what I was interrupting you about, apologies, there is, nurse has got specializations. You can't just, well, of course, you can be a general nurse. A serious concern to us, which also COVID-19 tested our resilience to the limit. You've got a shortage of ICU trained nurses, for instance. You've got a shortage of nurses who are trained in various specializations. ICU trained nurses, if a patient complicates and is taken to a higher care, they need to be cared for by ICU trained nurses. And you don't have enough of those. In the province like Fauti, we should be having more than 3,000 ICU trained nurses in our health care facilities. And yet we've got just about 600. Can you imagine that if you've got many patients and we've got many accidents in this country? Many accidents and patients present themselves in higher care due to accidents. And because we're not training enough of these in theater as well, theater nursing, in trauma nursing, emergency nursing, orthopedic, you know, midwifery, and many other areas, we, is, we are concerned about that. There will come a point where specialist areas of care will be, will be languishing in a disaster where you don't have enough trained nurses to look for patients who need a particular care in various specialization of healthcare services. And unfortunately, the posture of our government does not seem to be concerned about that. And that is why I thought I should raise it, because should we reach that point, it will be difficult for us to, to really, really come out of that, you know, quagmire. And many of our patients would have been lost, unfortunately. I never thought about it like that. And it would signal a catastrophe and it would... It would further deepen the inequality in our country because it would mean that certain access to certain types of services, say midwifery, would only be accessible to the elite. So it again creates these these huge inequalities. And I mean, we're already deeply struggling with inequalities from our past. And now we're risking or we're gambling with the idea of deepening them even more. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is 
throughout the kind of discourse of austerity, fiscal consolidation, and specifically reigning in the public sector wage bill, there has been almost a stigma attached to public sector workers. I mean, whenever um, public sector workers go on strike, there's this kind of blame game um, against public sector workers. I'm just wondering, I mean, what do you think of this kind of criticism that is kind of sprung onto the public sector? It's an unfortunate narrative, and there is a narrative out there. Of course, I mean, if you know, as a country, we've got two systems of everything. You know, we've got two systems, we've got a private system, we've got a public system. You've caused, of course, you've got people who are contributing taxes to the state, and unfortunately, of course, are not using such services. You get taxed, and yet you still, you still have a medical, you know, medical scheme that will take care of your health. And instead of the government seeing that as a positive and trying to improve, because if these people didn't have medical aid and they do not have to, because they are contributing taxes, they have to be cared for by the public service because they are, they are paying tax. And yet you've got, in spite of that relief that these people are, are giving you as a government, you are not improving on the services for at least those who are not. Unfortunately, you've got 80% people relying on the public services in the main in terms of healthcare, and just about 15% were dependent on the private healthcare. So there is a narrative that is there value for money for the increases that we're giving the public servants. Yes, there is. In fact, we just mentioned that there's a shortage of staff in our public service. Well, how much more would that narrative be if the staffing levels were at least, you know, in line with the population figures, at least increase the number of public servants in line with the growth in the population as a country, if you care about the public service that you are rendering to the communities. And unfortunately, we talk of a situation where currently our personnel numbers in government are far low compared to what they were in, in um, you know, just as we enter democracy. And yet there are these complaints. Of course, I'm afraid if you talk of this stigma and the bad attitude, lack of service, we feel that people are pointing at that there's no value for money simply because they are not seeing the quality of, of services being improved. They are not going to see it. They will only see it when numbers, personal numbers are increased in our government. And we also feel that private-public partnership area is not being exploited by our government enough for the benefit, for the mutual benefit of all parties. You had, I mean, an example during COVID-19, this taught us the importance of this partnership. And in the healthcare system, both public and private worked very well together. And we thought that would have served as an indication of where to go as a country. We've got NHI, which is a solution to our healthcare system, and yet you still have ministers like the Minister of Finance who is gunning down this idea and who's demoralizing it and saying it, there's no money to, 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 to finance it. And if you look at, this is all about combining funds that serve both public and private. If we were to combine those, at least some improvements would be done. But do your part as well as the government as we speak because you can't have an NHI that is effective because NHI for it, to be rendered in a facility. A facility must first be assessed. It must meet the strict criteria of quality services and infrastructure. If you don't do that as a government, the only services which is that may be able to provide NHI are facilities which have been approved, and many of those are in the private sector. And that just shows that government is really um, reluctant to come on board and try to improve on its healthcare services. And we're afraid 
patients in the rural areas, into the hardest hit, they may not be getting NHI because many facilities in rural areas are not being improved by our government and that it's private services to them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's actually, when you put it that way and how you've put it throughout this conversation, it's very scary because it is a matter of life and death. And I think maybe it's not always put in that way. It's Sometimes it's just seen as, oh, workers want to strike and get more money. It's not seen as these are people at the very heart of our healthcare system who are helping people and preventing death, right? My last question is, in recent weeks, we've seen a lot of maneuvering behind the scenes regarding fiscal consolidation in the lead up to the medium term budget speech, which will happen in November. And this has caused quite a lot of furore from various parts of the country. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. Well, we are very concerned. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, we understand why in South Africa, we're living in this country. The inflation is hitting on the workers. Very few workers are able to afford the basic food. And as we know that because of the have deprived, well, it um, really killed many jobs. You have few workers who are obviously looking after many family members, many of them are not working anymore. And this is the dire strain on each and every household is understandable. We are very concerned, however, that there appears to be an intention on the government to at least postpone some infrastructural projects that the government is committing itself to. I think as we speak, the government is in the process of perhaps identifying those projects that may not have at the advanced stage that they need some financing. We are seriously concerned about that because those are job enabling programs while also you know, pushing the growth of the economy. Now, without infrastructural spending, we doubt if there will be tangible and impactful intervention on countering the high inflation that we are faced with as a country. If you don't have enough people who are working, and who are afraid hunger, inequality, and poverty, and it's unfortunately going to reign supreme. And we're very fearful. We hope that there could be various means that are explored to ensure that at least we are salvaged as a nation from the bleak future that we are seeing to be headed for. And I mean, from the starting of the austerity measures, I'm calling it a lockdown on public services. This is a lockdown on public services. And our concern as public sector employees is that, yes, we will be allowed the critical staff to be employed, but we always feel the need of NOSA to explain that healthcare services is very complicated. You can't see critical staff only as the drivers of healthcare services. In the absence of what you call non-critical staff in healthcare services, talk of porters, we talk of cleaners, we talk of kitchen staff, we talk of clerks. Without those people, the healthcare services go down and people are not served optimally. We're very concerned about this and we feel that this will be the easy target by the government in terms of cutting costs. It can't work. You are, you are bringing down the healthcare services if you think that the healthcare services must not have clerks, cleaners, and cleaners for that matter. A healthcare facility must be clean as part of promoting you know, infection control measures. If you don't have enough of those, you may not be doing adequately to prevent infections. And you may have patients who have been admitted for one illness, 
it comes out and get infected by some other illnesses, specifically because there are not enough cleaners in healthcare facilities. Similarly, with your kitchen staff, nutrition is one of the great contributors to the recovery of our patients. If you don't see that as important, we feel that we may be contributing to the downfall of our very healthcare system as a country. And unfortunately, these decisions are made by people who are not feeling the pinch of them. And this is the sad part. And we hope that we feel that at some point, we must have a relationship where a decision that is made by government also does affect those who are making such decisions. A bleak future indeed, if these austerity measures go through. But an enlightening conversation with you, Subongi Seni. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Listeners, that is it for today's discussion, but I hope you will tune in to the next installment of this monthly series. Today's podcast will be released alongside two articles on the Mail and Guardian's website, each also contemplating this very important question of austerity and the public sector wage bill. Until next month, goodbye and good luck. Thank you for listening to the Mail and Guardian podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. All our podcasts can be found at mg.co.za and our social media platforms at Mail and Guardian. Follow this show under the hashtag The Fiscal Cliff. Support our journalism by going to mg.co.za and registering your free account. Please consider subscribing for 99 Rand a month and gain additional member benefits. This will go a long way to ensure that the Mail and Guardian can continue to bring you quality journalism. The Mail and Guardian, Africa's better future.